Touch them all, Joe! <laughs> Andy Crosby, the golden goal! James, thanks for joining us on the podcast. You're our very first professional athlete that we've had on, and I know you're going to set the bar high. Well, thank you very much for having me, Mark. All right. So I looked you up on, on the old Goog, and uh, and they've got you indexed. And so you're, you're pretty important to start with. So you're indexed as a soccer player. So it's a good start. It validates uh, us calling <laughs> you a professional soccer player. Uh, but Once upon a time. Hey, we all had those once upon a time moments. But as we get into uh, James Easton uh, more during our chat on the podcast today, I think the audience is really going to learn that, that you're so much more than a soccer player, although that might have defined a period of time early in your career. Yeah, no, that was a long time ago now. And I've uh, pivoted and, and moved into kind of the, the soccer business side of things. So I'm um, looking forward to talking to you about it. All right. Well, we're going to spend some time building building you kind of up we're not going to go into all the minutiae of your trials and tribulations though i know there are some awesome stories that you have to tell as i extract that out of you today but i wanted to start off with um you know kind of understanding what life was like for you you know when you're the son of a professional football player and a coach and then you're actually becoming you know quite a player yourself yeah, so my dad was a professional footballer for about 12, 13 years in Scotland. <clears throat> and he played at a very high level. He played for Dundee and Hibernian. And uh, they were, were two very top-class clubs there. And he played in Europe. He played against Barcelona and Real Madrid. And he played for Scotland. And then at the end of his career, he started moving to uh, sort of management. And he went to uh, a small little club in the borders called Queen of the South. And then he got an opportunity to go to Miami and he went and was the uh, player coach of the Miami Toros for a year. So we got the opportunity as a family to live on basically Miami for a year, uh, right on Collins Avenue. And then he was offered the the job uh, as the first Vancouver Whitecaps coach. And we were there for two years. And um, I was about eight when we we ended up going uh, to, uh, to, to Vancouver. And as a family, we absolutely loved it. It was a fantastic place. It was a, a glorious place. And um, and then he, he lasted there basically two years before he got turfed out. And he was, as a family, we were on our way to San Diego. And the family story is that I sat my mom and dad down at the table and basically said, you have the choice of moving 100 yards this way, 100 yards that way, 100 yards north, or 100 yards south, but we're not going any further than that and so my mom and dad decided to make a, a life for themselves in, in Vancouver so I grew up and went to high school and uh, in North Van. And when when we look at that story that North Van or Vancouver in general uh, and I might just jump around here a bit uh, we'll come back to kind of some of your own travels uh, early in your life in a moment but there's some fairly prominent soccer names to this day that, that have come out of Vancouver and uh, and I'm sure there are many others than the ones I'm going to mention, but you know clearly you know Bob Leonard Doozy comes out. He's he's quite a bit older than you, uh, but he comes out and obviously incredibly powerful still in soccer and Canadian soccer, and and Victor Montagliani, who you know, may, maybe didn't reach the same playing accolades as as you or Bob, um, and he and Victor's about the same age as you, so. How did you cross over with these gentlemen you know, when, when you were young? Um, and, um, and are there any others that 
you know, are worthy of a mention that have really defined not just soccer in Vancouver or British Columbia or Canada, but but in, in the world. Well, at the time, Bobby was the, um, he was like 15, 16, and he was playing in Reading, England. And he hated life, uh, as the story goes. And so my dad was over on a scouting trip and had been told that there was this Canadian kid playing over in England. And they went and looked at him and watched him. And uh, they got into the discussion and they ended up recruiting him to bring him back to Vancouver. So Bobby and I have known each other since... Uh, you know, since the earliest days of, of, of us moving to Vancouver, um, I've known the whole Leonard Uzi family, uh, all four brothers. Uh, I actually coached his son for a little bit, and Bobby's wife used to uh, periodically babysit me. Um, so I'm very familiar with Bobby and the family for 40-odd uh, years. Um, with regards to Victor, uh, Victor and I played against each other as kids, uh, and our paths have crisscrossed uh for the last 40 years as well, pretty much. Uh, he was a very good player. Um, I don't think people give him enough credit in that regard. He grew up in the um, Columbus uh, soccer club environment, and uh, but he was a very, very good player. Um, and then he started moving into the administration and, and the political side of football. And I've helped him out a little bit here and there, and he's assisted me here and there along the way. And uh, it's an amazing to see his journey and where he is now. Uh, as the president of CONCACAF and the vice president of FIFA. So um, absolutely fantastic. I think it's great for Canadian soccer uh, and, and the game writ large in this country. Uh, the other one I, I think is worthy of a mention is Brian Budd, who might be familiar to people in the GTA. And he was quite a story as well. He was one of the guys who won the, uh, the old Adidas uh, ABC Superstars contest. And he won it so many years in a row um, that they actually had to change the rules and kick him out. And so there was this sort of blonde-haired soccer guy who was beating all the best athletes in the U.S. in their backyard. And that didn't go down too well. But he was a soccer player that my dad also found. He was playing at UBC at the time and recruited. And, and so a uh, great character, phenomenal character. He showed up by, at our door one day uh, on Christmas, dressed as Santa Claus. <laughs> so great character and uh yeah we lost him too soon well so that those are amazing connections to have like that i can't imagine the, the competition and the culture around that or we're, we're going to get into into bobby and victor a little more as we chat here today um before we get there I, there was a stat that kind of occurred to me as i was preparing to chat with you today and, and it's around around bobby which is so he played for your dad and then if i have the years right you guys played together for the 86ers? Yeah, so Bobby was the very first coach of the Vancouver 86ers. And so he it was his last year of playing. So he was the player coach. And uh, yeah, so our, our careers kind of crossed that way as well. He's also the, the coach of the national team. So I played for him a little bit there as well. Wow. And I don't know if there's, there's got to be some stat here. I'm not, you know, maybe we can talk to Elias to, to find out the how many other people were coached by uh, a guy's dad and then played with the guy or girl. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't funny know. Stat. It's a funny, funny stat. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> well, we're all about the stats here, right? On the Backstage Project podcast. It's, it, we're all about the analytics. So so thinking about James Easton, and I want to I want to put it to you this way. Like, w- what are you known for kind of today? What, what, do, what do you think? People uh, will say when they go, yeah, James Easton, he's, you know, fill in the blanks. 
Well, I think I was a pretty good footballer. You know, uh, I was drafted at 16 by the Tampa Bay Rowdies, uh, which I think still somebody told me this the other day. Uh, I think I was the youngest guy ever drafted in the old NESL or the original NESL. Uh, but unfortunately, my my career, my playing career was cut a little bit short by uh, numerous knee injuries. Um, and that kind of uh, and so I left the game with a bit of a bad taste. I had this kind of love hate affair um with it uh but i've always kept involved at some level um but more recently i think what i really sort of looked at is the um the sort of the the professional opportunities for young canadian players in the game today and working towards building uh opportunities for them is probably um the thing that has brought me the most satisfaction and probably the thing that uh people around Canada know me for is the um, helping put the CPL together and doing a lot of the um, the strategy work around that and the market analysis and the the viability of it. And and that's obviously how you and I met. For people who don't know the connection between James and I, um, James and I were both involved at the earliest uh, stages when it kind of became a project of of creating the Canadian Premier League and um, awesome awesome to launch a league. Now, James, so everyone understands that that wasn't the first time that someone had come to you and said, hey, what's the viability of a domestic uh, professional soccer league? So it's not like uh, all of a sudden you were doing something you weren't comfortable with. But tell us how you kind of fell into this niche of uh, just being really an expert on not just kind of the, the player side, but there's socioeconomic aspects to it. There's obviously a business side that goes into creating a viable league and, um, and then what that means for a country on the world stage. So um, after I stopped playing, I, I went to school, uh, went back to school, got my BA, then went on and got a, an MA. And uh, it was while I was writing my MA thesis project, um, I was looking for a project to, to write about. And I kicked around a couple of ideas and ended up doing something about soccer and the importance of soccer and looking at the world through a very soccer lens. And um, and then sort of when I, I, I did my MBA, uh, again, I was looking for another soccer project and I ended up doing something. I originally went to Canada Soccer. I was thinking about rewriting their constitution. Then I went to CONCACAF, but I couldn't get any sort of response there. And actually, Victor was the one that introduced me to some people at MLS. And uh, at that time, MLS uh, was looking for me to do a project that uh, investigated their expansion plans into Canada. And at the time, the TFC was already just about to launch, and they were looking at further opportunities in other markets. Uh, once they got kind of wind that uh, I had a history in Vancouver and a connection to Vancouver, and my, my dad also had a history and a connection to Vancouver, they thought the the optics of that didn't look all that very good if they used my findings to sort of support their decision. And so they kind of pivoted a little bit and asked me to look at their um, digital media strategy. And I had no background in digital media. Well, we didn't uh, know each other yet. And you would have yes, just called yes, me if you had to do that Absolutely. You'd have been my, my advisor for sure. Uh, but I ended up finding a guy who was running um, Yahoo Canada, an American guy. And he was fantastic. He helped me sort of uh, navigate my way through. And I made some recommendations. And, and whether, you know, MLS had those um, ideas in mind or whether I – and that 
you know, my uh, recommendations just sort of further solidified those things. I don't know, but they, they took a lot of my ideas and, and they, they went with it. Uh, anyway, long story short is the, the, the people I was dealing with at MLS obviously liked my, my stuff and they came back to me after the, the, the fact and asked me if I would work on this project. And what they were looking at was doing a technical review of a whole season. And I was one of 10 people they uh, invited to kind of participate in this project. And I put all my cards on the table. I said, look, I, I'm not a technical guy. Uh, I'm happy to do this, but I'm not a technical guy. I'm not coach in, in the same way as some of these other names you have uh, invited. And they said, don't worry about it. We like what you do and we're interested in your perspective. So where a lot of these guys kind of zoomed in, I kind of zoomed out. And I looked at the, the game and the league kind of more in a holistic fashion. And so one of the first recommendations I made in that, uh, which is something that you see today. Uh, so in the very first game of that season, L.A. played Seattle. And within a minute, the game being kicking off, there's a free kick and Beckham goes up to take it. And like every other game up until that point, the wall sort of moves forward and compresses the 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 yardage between the where the ball is, the kick has been taken and where the, uh, the wall is. So rather than 10 yards, he's down like five yards. Right. And I had uh, the year before been in on my honeymoon in Ecuador and I'd seen the, the spray paint, the referee paint. And I just thought this, why isn't everybody using that? So I had written this recommendation up this, you're not uh, giving Beckham or anybody else an unfair advantage. All you're doing is enforcing the rules. And the other thing that you're doing by using this type of technology at the time is you're causing um, guys from getting frivolous yellow cards. All of that kind of goes away. And so, you know, again, that was one of the things I did. But as part of that project, one of the things I, I, I noticed was the lack of Canadian players playing in the league, and especially in Toronto. And so I had made this as part of my my recommendation as well, that there needed to be an effort to give Canadian players the same opportunities as the American ones. And when I did that, I went to Canada Soccer to see what their position was on it. And when I knocked in their door, they're like, who are you sort of thing? And um, and from there, kind of Victor and I reconnected and he said, look, we're, we're looking at um, establishing our own Division Two League in Canada. Would you sort of do the uh, be the consultant on the project? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I took that on and uh, ran with it. And at the time, like I say, the uh, the league was already up and operational, uh, MLS that is, and Toronto was there. Uh, Vancouver was either in or just coming in. Montreal was about to come in. And the appetite for a Canadian league at that time, uh, there was none. There, there was, there's nobody was interested in it. There was no money was interested in investing in it. And so the recommendation that came out of that was rather than investing in division two and supporting division two, we sh Canada and Canada soccer should look at division three. And so out of that was League One Ontario, PLSQ, and a real sort of concerted effort to try and, and uh, support that level of football. And that's been fantastic for Canada and for a lot of young players. They've had a great success. Dino Rossi and, and some of the others involved in that have done phenomenally well. And, uh, yeah, one of the proud things that uh, as being part of the CPL project was seeing um, CPL slash Canada soccer business acquire League One Ontario and bring it under its umbrella.
Wow, it's an amazing journey and part of the story. I think I knew some of it, but the, the path and the way you told it is incredible. We're going to come back to this line, by the way, but I think there's a missing piece of the story that I want to explore with you. And then I think we will converge at a point where we uh, really enlighten the audience with um, with exactly just how valuable, you know, what's inside your noggin uh, is to Canadian soccer. So I'm going to go, I'm going to wind the clock back uh, to your playing days. And, uh, and you were on the men's national team. So first of all, simple question. Um, you know, it's a free kick, if you will. Uh, what, is it, what does it mean uh, to be on the Canadian men's national team? I don't think there's any higher honor. Um, I think for me, uh, Canada is the best country in the world. I wasn't born in the country, but uh, I, the game has given me the luxury and the, the benefit of being able to travel. Um, and of all the countries I've ever been or gone to, there, I've never seen or been in a country better than Canada. Uh, I love what it stands for. Uh, I love the beauty of it. Uh, most of the time, I like the weather. <laughs> um, and as a, as a person who's living in the States, I miss it every day. Yeah, James and I, we famously talk about how jealous I am about living in kind of Northern California where he is. But I know he does wish he's up in Canada a lot of the time now during these interesting and uncertain times. So I, again, as an athlete, I don't think, especially in the, in the world of uh, soccer, I don't think there's any greater honor to be selected to go and represent your country um, on the national stage. Oh, well said and contextualized. And, and spoken from someone who, you know, Canada is going to your, your adopted country a little bit. Um, and that story you've already told us about how you kind of had a what might have been a 10-year-old hissy fit on your <laughs> parents uh, to stay in Canada is tremendous, too. Now you were you know, at the at the height of your playing days, maybe near the end when you were a little more of a veteran. You know there was the 1986 FIFA Men's World Cup, and uh, I've done a little bit of fact checking and a couple of things. So one, only World Cup Canada ever went to in the World Cup era, FIFA Men's World Cup. Uh, they didn't win a game. They didn't score a goal in their first game against France. It was zero zero until late in the game. So that that's great. But, but looking back, a couple things. One, I know you, you were on the bubble of making that team from what I've been able to research. So as an athlete now, um, what, is that, what, what did that feel like at the time? I was devastated, to be quite honest. And then shortly thereafter uh, of hearing I, I wasn't going to be part of the plans, uh, I had my first knee injury. And uh, it just seemed like that was piling on. It didn't seem really fair. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was, uh, I knew how big the World Cup was um, and what it w would mean to Canada and Canada soccer. Uh, and I knew a lot of the players who were going. Uh, some of them were sort of from my era. Um, but here's the thing. I, I played a very different style of football to a lot of the players um, of that team. Um, and they went there to get results. And, and by results, I mean just not to be embarrassed and, and just keep the score sort of close and, and all of that. And I was probably a bit of a luxury if they were going to take me. And because uh, I like to get on the ball and play and, and, and you know, do my thing. So uh, but at the same time, it, it, it was the only time I think we're, you know, going forward, we're, we've got a good chance here in 2022. Uh, and certainly we'll get a, a, another shot in 26. But, uh, yeah, it's one of the things I feel a little bit of regret. But, you know, what can you do? It was out of my hands. Listen, great perspective all these years later. I'm sure at the time you could not have spoken so eloquently about it. <laughs> 
but looking back on 1986, um, there's a, and then I guess dovetailing into 1994 and, and the U.S. World Cup. Um, what was going on with Canadian soccer during that time? And I know it's gone on for quite a while after that. And hopefully 2022, like you said, is the beginning of a correction. And we will absolutely talk about some of the names behind 2022. Um, but how significant was 1986? And then really 1994. Uh, for what it did to transform the whole North American soccer landscape. I come at it from a, a little bit of a different perspective. Um, I think in, in some regards, qualifying for, for 86 might have been the worst thing that happened to Canadian soccer because it reinforced in a lot of people's mind there was only one way of playing. And at that very time, there was a lot of people involved in the game who had taken a very uh, data analytics kind of perspective to things. And so when I played on the youth team at that time, the, the whole sort of uh, plan was, um, so at that time in England, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Charles Hughes. And he had um, distilled the game down to, you know, counting passes and all the rest of it, right? And they had analyzed that, you know, the majority of goals were scored with three passes or less. So anything over three passes was wasted effort. Right. All the on-the-ball analytics, the stuff that we now know yes. is important, but not as important as off-the-ball as well. But there, I think at that time, uh, you know, there's a difference between knowing about something and knowing something, right? I can read a book about something. It doesn't mean I know it because there's a, a certain um, tacit knowledge you can only get by doing, right? So you can have a very intellectual or academic uh, understanding of something, but it doesn't make, mean you have the feel for something. And that was the difference. And so the people who were running Canada, uh, Soccer Canada at that time, took this very academic approach to things. And so, you know, basically the, the and for me as a guy who liked to get on the ball and play, uh, it was really, really difficult. Um, and so really the tactics were get the ball, you know, hammer it down into the, the opposing end, try and win a, uh, a throw in deep in their end, you know, throw the ball back to the, the full back and whip it into the near post because somebody had done an analysis that 82% of goals scored at the, I think, 82 World Cup had come from exactly that. And that, that was the way we played. And because we were somewhat successful in getting to 86 and we didn't embarrass ourselves there, I think what happened is it set in place for a long time that this was the only way we could be successful. And uh, whereas the world sort of moved on from that and changed, it had already kind of changed by the time we got to the, to the World Cup. But we had sort of set in place, this is the way that Canada would play going forward. And uh, so I, I think it held the game back for a little while. It became a, a, the only way to kind of play was this very uh, English-British style. And I, I think the makeup of the country is so very different from that, that we didn't take advantage of all of the, the diversity we have. Well, with the change in the in the makeup of soccer in North America from you know, NASL to then CSL and then eventually MLS, and we, we know it took quite a while for MLS to, to mature, uh, at least 10 to 15 years. Uh, this goes already, this even goes back a few years from now, but it's like eight, nine years ago. But... Um, as MLS is coming to fruition, um, what's happening? What's happening to the Canadian game? I mean, this is pre-TFC and Whitecaps and uh, an impact. It just kind of stalled out, 
Um, you know, there, there was the Vancouver 86ers who went on and played in the A-League. Uh, Montreal did something similar. Toronto just, you know, they had the links for a little while. But really, the game just died to death. Uh, and the opportunities for young Canadian players were pretty much non-existent. Um, you know, a lot of these guys became missionaries and uh, mercenaries, rather, um, running around the country, trying to around the world, for that matter, trying to find a gig. Somebody would pay them to play soccer. Uh, Thomas Hobbes, I think, said uh, the life of man was poor, nasty, brutish, and short, and that could describe, you know, pretty much the uh, the, the, the every soccer player in Canada at that time, trying like professional player who had aspirations to play at the highest level. And uh, there's just the, the opportunities were non-existent. Now, Canada was an interesting sporting nation at that point. It was right around the, uh, you know, the Calgary Olympics, where we know that uh, Canada didn't perform so great at that Olympics. Uh, the Blue Jays had all of a sudden come into their own. Uh, we're right at the end of kind of the Gretzky era in Edmonton. Uh, and the world is quickly changing. We don't have the Raptors yet. And, um, and we kind of... So we move forward into this era with MLS and the Canadian, you know, the Canadian team doesn't have appearances and really soccer doesn't, frankly, doesn't really reemerge in the Canadian front. I know this, this 2000 gold cup win, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that. And because those players were not playing, you know, they were playing in the MLS, they were playing some in Europe. So talk a little bit about the significance of that 2000 gold cup win. And, and did that change anything in Canadian soccer? I think the U S getting, uh, awarded the World Cup was the biggest turning point. Um, actually, it was funny. I was just talking to Bob Leonard Doozy the other day about this, and he brought this very moment up. He says he can exactly remember when it was announced that the U.S. had been awarded the World Cup. He was in Hamilton, and he said this is going to, you know, turn the game around and set it on a, a, a brand new trajectory. And uh, you know, there's been a lot of truth to that. Up until that point, I think that. Uh, ourselves and the U.S. national teams were were very even, uh, and then they got the World Cup, and then they, the, the opportunities for young Americans to play uh, just became that much greater than what we had in Canada and at a higher level. And you know, they've just seen them sort of progress, 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 and, and, and keep going with it. So, look at the end of the day, I, I think um, you know, talent is universal, opportunity is not. And uh, what the CPL is about is sort of creating those similar opportunities that those American boys got for Canadians. And so they don't have to go traveling the world in these backwaters to try and find somebody to pay them to play football. They now get an opportunity to do that in their own backyard, in their own within the borders of Canada. So let's compare that to something that's playing out you know, right in front of our eyes for many people, you know, their first glimpses uh, of Alfonso Davies. Um, so is there an Alfonso Davies, uh, if it wasn't for MLS, if it wasn't for the Vancouver Whitecaps? Well, I think there was a lot of people who, um, had, um, helped Alfonso on his way. I don't think it was just the Whitecaps. They certainly gave him an opportunity for sure. But to your point, no, I don't think he has that progression. I don't think there's that, that pathway um otherwise uh without the white caps and major league soccer there's no question about it so we just saw it this week you know we have alfonso on the championship team of uh uefa champions league what does that mean 
for the sport of soccer in Canada? Oh, I just think it uh, elevates it to a whole new level. Uh, and also, in the, almost in the same week, we've had another transfer of a, another young Canadian, uh, Jonathan David, who went for even more money in, in on the transfer fee than Alfonso did from the Whitecaps to, to Bayern. Wow. Um, the game is... Um, there's a, a big sh- uh, spotlight being shined on Canada right now. And um, people are looking at it... Um, you know, I, I think around the world, people think of Canada when they think of Canada is a hockey country. But there's a lot of football talent here. And as I go back to the, what I said earlier, it's it, talent is universal. It's uh, it's the opportunity that is not. And I think, you know, with you know, three MLS teams here and you've got, you know, eight CPL clubs and, and the additional opportunities that are going to come from all of this, the things that are going on in football in, the, in, in Canada, I think that you will find more young boys and, and uh, other players who will move on from Canada and, and go and play in some of these other uh, esteemed leagues in the world, for sure. I'm going to come back to that in a second and ask you something. Before we, before we kind of move off Alfonso Davies, you know, in Canadian terms, you know, Christine St. Clair is the most dominant Canadian athlete, you know, male or female, you know, at least in the last 20 years. You know, in, in every sport, you know, except hockey, and, and Wayne Gretzky, obviously. But beyond Alfonso playing, you know, in the top club in, in the world's super, super league, you know, what can we expect from Alfonso? Or is it more than an impact on the record book? Is, is it about Canadians playing in the biggest games on the biggest stage? Well, it's really hard to be what you can't see. And um, I think the the presence of these guys uh, like Jonathan David and Alfonso Davies and, and Kristen Sinclair, they inspire the younger people coming through. So the 12 year old or the 13 year old who may be a pretty good athlete all round and has to make some decisions. Do I go the hockey route? Do I go the baseball route? Do I go the basketball route or do I go the soccer route? Well, before there was no path forward because nobody had ever done it before with regards to the soccer. And so with the World Cup potentially coming in 2026, or even if Canada gets to the, the World Cup in 2022, those young boys might rededicate themselves to, to soccer rather than, you know, pick hockey or some other sport that they might have done otherwise in the past. Great. And so well said, by the way. James is, uh, is very academic and astute in, in the way that he approaches these topics. And he, he, was, he did not know the questions before we asked them. This is totally candid responses, and he's doing a fabulous job at it. James, there's a few questions that we like to ask every every guest on the podcast, so I'm going to hit you with these now, which you're completely unprepared for. <laughs> so if you had to pick one moment in your career, and I'll let you choose what you define as career, by the way. Um, you know, what, what moment would that be? Um, I think one of the most rewarding uh, moments of my of my career is when two of my sort of great passions or interests kind of collide or came together. Uh, I've done a lot of work in First Nation communities. Uh, I've ran a couple of First Nations. Um, and uh, one of the things I've experienced working on reserve is their great love and passion for soccer. And so when I, I was running and helping run the Mount Curry Indian Band, which is just about 40 miles north of Whistler, it's a community of about 16, 1800 people. Um, 
what we did is we put together uh, a soccer program for them or helped them sort of with their soccer program. And then we um, set up one of the one of the sort of counselors there came to me and said, look, one of the things that sort of changed my life was going to England for a coaching course. He said, I'd love to take a bunch of kids from our community and go to the UK and, and um, just let them experience soccer and just sort of a different culture. And so uh, between my dad and my contacts, we set out a plan. And um, it was a year-long process that the kids had to sign up for. They didn't just sort of show up and, and go. They had to, you know, abide by certain rules and sign a contract. And, um, you know, they, they, they weren't allowed to – they had to stay in school. That was the first and foremost thing. They were not allowed to drink or drug because some of these challenges exist on the reserve. They had to show up when they were uh, at the, the various practices. They had to make their own drum. They had to meet with the elders and learn the songs of the community. And they had to sort of do all of this sort of fundraising and all the rest of it. So it was a whole sort of year-long um, agreement that we, they had to sort of uh, live up to. And, you know, there's a couple of kids that never quite made it. Um, and, and that was a shame. But there was about 44 kids that went, boys and girls, uh, between the ages of 13 and 16, and I was terrified, <laughs> as you can well imagine. And um, so we also did this, the soccer stuff with them. We trained them and, and all the rest of it. And what we did is we based ourselves in Edinburgh, Scotland. And every day uh, they would either have uh, a soccer experience. So we would get professional coaches from some of the, the local Scottish clubs to come in and train them or they would play a game against one of the reserve teams or youth teams of a professional club, or they would do some sort of cultural event or cultural visit. So they went to Bannockburn or something like that. And um, so one of the things that we did, uh, so all of that was done and we made sure they had clothing and everybody looked the same and all of that. Now we did a sort of a little poll of the, the group and 95% of them, had never really been outside of the Vancouver Whistler sort of corridor. And only one of them had ever been on an airplane before. Right. So on the day it came for us to leave to the UK, you know, um, they all kind of came down there. We're meeting in the Vancouver international airport and the, um, I don't know if you know, or you're familiar with the international terminal, but they've got the Bill Reed sculpture, the big green Bill Reed sculpture. And um, so as we were checking them all in, there was about 150 community members came down and they came down with their drums. Right. And the kids who were going were terrified. You could see it in their body language. Right. They were absolutely terrified. And then so the community sort of drummed them off. Right. And you could see these kids walking through the security and all the rest of it. And I remember sort of walking along the uh, and, and when they started drumming, the whole concourse came to a standstill there was people running down to see what was going on it was, it was an amazing experience to to be part of and i remember one of the old elders coming up and he's putting his arm around me and he said you know you should take this as a sign of respect and i i didn't quite understand him at the time somebody else had to kind of explain it to me he said basically what he's saying is we are giving you we're handing over to you the very future of our community we have no idea where you're taking them or what you're going to do with them but the very fact that we're doing that shows that we trust you. 
and we know that you will bring them back in, in, you know, in a good order. And um, so these kids went, they were fantastic. There was two of the kids that were asked to stay behind by a professional team. And the kids that came off the plane were 10 feet tall. Wow. That's a powerful, a powerful story. And so many similarities to what you've, you know, dedicated, you know, the last five, 10 years of your life toward. One of, just, just one last thing, Mark, one of the, 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 the last thing that they got to do. So they were based in Edinburgh and through a connection that we had, we got to take those kids down to Manchester and Manchester United. And we got them into Carrington and Carrington is the training center for Manchester United. And they got to meet Alex Ferguson. They presented him with a drum. They got to get their pictures with all the players and all of that. It was incredible. Absolutely incredible. And like I said, when we got back home, um, you know, the, the kids had to get, they had a potlatch for them, right? They had a community sort of uh, dinner that they hosted for all of the community to thank the community for helping them fundraise and to help them go on this trip. And myself and my dad were, were invited and we got presented a drum. And uh, so this, this uh, experience of bringing the soccer together with my um, cultural experience and my First Nation experience was very, very rewarding. No, it sounds, it sounds amazing. And as you've told us today, and soccer kind of guides everything that you do. That's pretty, that's pretty clear. Uh, now, for people that are looking to, let's say, become part of the, the, the business of soccer, the future of soccer, um, you're looking to get into the space. And I know that you and I both know many, many people who are you know, chomping at the bit for these kinds of experiences. What kind of advice do you, do, you, do you say to people who say, James, how do, how do I get involved? One of the things I think you need to do is not be parochial. Um, the football world is a global one. It's probably the most global professional in the world. Um, you look at the MLS, I think there's like 80 different nationalities represented there. And so you cannot just sort of focus or look at sort of the North American game and think that's it. You need to um, make sure you have a, an understanding and a knowledge of it. I was, I was, and also the game is very different from North American sports. One of the stories, and I've heard it from a couple of different people, so it must be true. Uh, the owner of the Atlanta United team, who also owns the uh, Atlanta Falcons, um, you know, he, he's been uh, very much hands off on, on the soccer side of things. But um, in, in soccer, they have player transfers where you can actually make money buying and selling players. Right. And this is a very con foreign concept to most people in North American sports. Um, the idea that you can buy and sell an athlete is an anathema to a lot of them, right? Uh, or they don't even know about it in the first place. And so uh, I understand, and again, I've been told this uh, story a couple of times from different people, so there must be some truth to it, that they came to him. There's a player that um, a team in England was looking to, to buy off of the Atlanta United team, and they had offered him something in the neighborhood of like 15 or $20 million for this player. And they came to him and said, look, this is a pretty big decision. And so this is why we're knocking on your Hitachi about it. And, you know, because generally the, the club was allowed to run uh, on its own. And, and he couldn't wrap his head around it. He, he had no idea. He had spent, you know, millions of dollars putting this club in place, right? But it's still no understanding that there was buying and selling of players in soccer because it wasn't, he wasn't used to it in any of the other sports he was involved in. And, and he was like, from the story I was told was, 
You mean they want to give me money for one of my players? They want to give me millions of dollars for this player? Hell yes. Absolutely. Right. And um, so you have to understand the game and the, the way it works on a, a global basis, not just in a regional or national basis. So that's what I would sort of um, uh, instill in people. You need to kind of understand and take an interest in the game on a more global basis. No, it's perspective that it's very tough for us in North America to wrap our head around it. I know that the in Canada anyway, and I'm sure in the MLS you know, clubs around North America, you know, the Alfonso Davies uh, acquisition was or purchase was the first one that really opened our eyes to this. I know that the CPL, and I don't know how public it is, so you'll share what you can, has already had some success um, with the transfer of players. Maybe if uh, from what you can tell us, how important is that to the business model or how important is that just to the development of soccer in Canada and having a more competitive Canadian national team? Well, we've done actually quite well. Um, I think if we, so it's public knowledge, we've sold five players. Um, and to put that in perspective, uh, the three MLS, Canadian MLS teams between them have not sold five players in their history, domestic players, that is Canadian players. Um, so I, I think that uh, speaks well for the future. Certainly, we've not, uh, you know, brought in the same money that Alfonso Davies did in, in that transfer, but we've started the process. And between Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David and some of the other Canadian players that are doing well overseas, it has renewed people's interest in in what we're doing on, on in, in within Canada and within the CPL. And uh, I, I just think that's we've just started. We really just started to get going, but it is absolutely important to the business model um, because it's important in right across the world. If you look at UEFA, right, the the top fifteen leagues in UEFA, you absolutely need to, you know, the the, the other sort of three main revenue streams, you know, the broadcast, the um, uh, the attendance, the the match day stuff, and and also sort of the sponsorships. So you need to be going gangbusters on those right but if you look at uh most uh of the top leagues 15 to kind of 20 percent of the uh, of the revenues are coming in it's in, in some cases even more than that um are coming in from player sales so you need to to work that you need to work that mine in order to bring money in otherwise you're leaving money on the table and i know that You've made some good investments and in personnel uh, within the CPL uh, to help uh, not just the CPL clubs, but uh, but League One as well. So really, really looking forward to seeing how that evolves over time and, and a more competitive uh, national team and hopefully in the 2022 20, uh, World Cup and obviously the 2026, which hopefully uh, they qualify for, but they'll, they'll play in anyways from what I understand. So looking back on, on your career for a moment, a little bit of a different perspective, um, What's something that, you know, today you're much wiser, you've had the chance to be on, you know, both success, failure, learning of, of sides of one's career. Um, what, are some of, what are some of the things that you wish you knew when you were a little younger? I wished I'd stayed in French classes longer. Um, so we all wish that. <laughs> so uh, basically what happened was... Um, I was playing in the NASL, like I say, I was, I was drafted very young. Uh, I still can't believe my mom allowed me to, to go at that age. 
uh, made the first team at 17, uh, had the opportunity and spent six months in Brazil at Sao Paulo and then came back and actually Sao Paulo had asked to kind of keep me on and, and, uh, Tampa said no. And I came back and played for Tampa. Uh, like I say, played in the first team at 17. Then the league up and folded from under me. And I had two opportunities at that time. One was to go play in Scotland. And I and to Dundee United. I went on trial, and, and uh, the other one was to go to France. And I think when I think of uh, the way I played and, and uh, the style of football uh, I was good at, I was much better suited to to play in France or play somewhere on the continent. But my French was awful, and so the easy decision was to go play in Scotland. And, the, and my style of football just did not sort of mesh with that. And so I spent three years there um, living in, in Dundee and playing for Dundee United. Uh, but I think I would have done far better uh, football on the football side of things anyway, if I had been able to speak French and I'd been brave enough and, and gone and played in France. So when we're young, being comfortable and in a familiar place is uh, something we skew toward. I can't speak to today's generation, but I can speak to my own paths and being comfortable and accepted is uh, something is kind of the security that you might need around yourself, especially I can't imagine what it was like. Like you, you guys were in Scotland as a family, you come to Vancouver or you get to Vancouver. Then now you're back in Scotland. Like did the family have, residences in in scotland and and british columbia you could just hop back and forth and you know not even pack a suitcase no it wasn't quite like that obviously i still have a lot of family there um and so my mom and dad would come back pretty much every summer and and i would come back when uh, during the off season back to to vancouver so uh yeah like i say i i I love scotland uh it's you, you can't take the the boy uh, the Scotland out of the boy. Um, and I have a, a lot of fond memories. In fact, if before COVID kind of showed up, we as a family down here, we're going to go in and holiday in, in Scotland this summer. Uh, but it's not to be able for another time. Well, so, but that was, that was the one thing that I, I, I think that if I had gone to France, things might've changed or been a little bit different for me. Well, if that means that you and I would have never met, then, you know, for my own part, I'm, I'm happy that you didn't go to France. <laughs> Now, one last question, and you kind of teed it up for us. So your dad was a pro player. You were a pro player. You got three youngish kids. Which uh, which one is going to carry the Easton name forward in the professional ranks? And uh, and feel free to say what sport. Uh, uh, with any luck, none of them. Um, I you know hopefully they get their mom's intellect. And my, my wife is a, um, a radiologist and is by far the smartest person I've ever met. So hopefully they take a more academic uh, approach to things and um, go on and become a doctor or a lawyer or, or something else. All right. That's uh, a safe if, answer. <laughs> or maybe a physiotherapist. Uh, I know a couple of those guys. Yeah, I could use one. One of my, I hope one of my kids is some kind of a chiropractor or something. Oh, yes. I, am, I am broken at this point. One last story: the two, two of the last, uh, two of the guys. I used to be in a little company called um, P Two, and uh, it started off as being soccer signs, and it was you know put together initially by five different physiotherapists, um, 
and then I was sort of the non-physiotherapist. I was sort of the, the, the business guy behind it. But two of those guys have gone on. One of them actually is, is in Toronto and have had phenomenal success. One is Alex McKechnie, who basically sat on the bench uh, at the NBA Finals uh, this past year and has, I think, five rings with the, with the Lakers. Uh, so, uh, and the other one is Rick Salabrini. And I don't know if that name resonates with She's a former national team player. So those are our two guys. And, and Rick is actually the sports science uh, guy for the Warriors. So on, on the, the bench at the NBA Finals this year was two Canadians. And the thing that kind of uh, brought us all together was our love for, for soccer. And, uh, you know, some of them played or were coaches or physios for soccer. But the great love between us all was the soccer. Well, it's great to, great to bring it back to soccer. <laughs> James, it's been great to, to chat today and connect and um, I hope you and your family are safe and our back to school is uh, is positive. I know it's not normal um, and I look forward to this. Well, talking to you, we're going to do that, but seeing you again when, uh, when the CPL kind of gets back to some kind of normal at some point, maybe in the 2021 season. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I really enjoy it. And yeah, like you say, I, I really hope there's a, a time here in the not too distant future that we can all get back traveling and back to some sort of normalcy and I can get back up into Canada and Toronto. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.